0: Hi, this is Hal Blaine, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology
1: Project. Pantheon Podcast presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology,
0: and rock and roll. Now... On with the show. Hey, good-looking, you got cooking, diggers? Christian Swain here, uncovering more rock and roll archaeology for you. Coming from Pantheon HQ in San Francisco. Yes. Let me get some uh, quick business out of the way. Uh, Another shout-out this week. We have another new Patreon supporter in Malcolm from Queensland, Australia. He's coming in with a $10 monthly pledge. Uh, nice job, Malcolm. Very nice words as well. Thank you. Uh, we are humbled by your pledge and thoughts. Your contribution will go to help cover the costs of running this joint uh, with almost 30 shows now and hitting over 100,000 listeners in September. Uh, as that number grows, uh, so do our expenses. Hey, you too can get the uh, reserved seating package like Malcolm uh, for even a $5 a month pledge at patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast. That gets you a mention on deeper digs and our social media. uh, And there are even bigger VIP experiences for greater pledge amounts. Now, we don't really expect all of that. In fact, please, just $1 a month pledge goes a long way and gets you our eternal gratitude as well as a rock and roll snarl or two. Again, go check out patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast. All right, let's get to it.
1: Janice said when she was just five years old, there was nothing happening at all. Every time she puts on the radio, there was nothing going down at all. Not at all. Then one fine morning, she puts on a New York station. You know, she don't believe what she heard at all. She started shaking to that fine fine music. You know, her life was saved by rocking.
0: Yes, we are going to dig deep into the life and times of the dark prince of New York, Lou Reed. Our guest today is Howard Soons, who has written a new biography called The Life of Lou Reed, Notes from the Underground. It's a detailed and highly researched book of Lou's entire life, from suburban Jewish kid dreaming of a rock and roll life, to his drug-addled years that required numerous people just to keep him going in the rock and roll life, to his late life as philanthropic rock and roll gentleman <laughs> with last wife, his ultimate love, Lori Anderson. It's all there to examine and decide if Lou deserves his place in the rock and roll pantheon. Well, of course he does, but it's not easy to love him. Uh, he is a asshole throughout much of his life and this book. And not because he was made into it, uh, electroshock therapy notwithstanding, but because he kind of chooses to be. A big reason I wanted to dive into this rock and roll archaeology in the first place is to find out why these particular people were so special. What Was it genetics, uh, influences in childhood, work ethic, luck, craftsmanship... Um, Certainly, uh, each of these geniuses are different, but I've always wondered, how is it that the two greatest songwriting geniuses of the 20th century grew up less than a mile apart from each other in an industrial port town on the west coast of England? So, is Lou Reed like one of those guys? Um, From a distance, uh, especially once you understand his lyrical fascination with the seedy underbelly of American life in the 60s and 70s, y- you figure he must have been born into this to sound so authentic. But upon closer examination of Lou's life, uh, you realize he was just a suburban kid from Long Island uh, that had a common, normal, middle-class childhood uh, in the 50s and early 60s and then reinvented himself and did so several times. Uh, transformer indeed. Yes, it all starts with the said electroshock therapy. Uh, traumatic, to be sure. No no question about it. And I am in no way making light of it. But how it has an interesting new take on the whys and how it did or didn't affect Lou... Or, or maybe how Lou used it for his first reinvention. Uh, there are a lot of these new thoughts in Howard's book. A lot to consider here when thinking about Lou Reed and his place in the rock and roll canon. Now, Howard Soons is not your usual rock and roll biographer. While he loves the music and understands the subject, uh, having written several other rock bios... He actually got his start as an investigative journalist for the Sunday Mirror. Uh, His first book is an account of a murderous couple in the UK, Fred and Rosemary West, who killed at least 12 people between 1967 and 1987. Howard made his name covering the investigation and trials. Uh, So digging into dark individuals (laughs) kind of comes naturally to him. All right, diggers, let's chat with Howard Soons.
1: Linger on
0: Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Howard Soons. How are you doing today? Yeah, good. Lovely to hear from you, Christian. Yeah. So let's get into uh, your book, uh, this new Lou Reed biography, Notes from the Velvet Underground. Uh, I believe this is your third of a legend uh, in the rock and roll era, having written one on Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan. So is the is this the end of a triptych?
2: Well, I, I um, don't know. I didn't think of it like that. I mean, a triptych is a fancy word. Um, I, I wrote the Bob Dylan book because I loved Bob Dylan. And it was a big success. And when you write a book like that that makes money, the publishers say, write Let's another have more. rock and roll book. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I then kind of went down a rock and roll road. And I tried to pick things that I really liked. And I certainly really liked Lou Reed when I was 14, 15 I like Lou Reed better than anything. Uh, that, was a, that was a long time ago, though.
0: So, so, uh, so, uh, uh, I, I would assume Paul McCartney fits in uh, to your love as well, because uh, I, I know that uh, uh, with this current book, you you've been working on it since twenty thirteen, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, yes. I mean, the McCartney, really the Beatles for me with McCartney. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book about Amy Winehouse, and I really loved Amy Winehouse. Yeah, I mean, Dylan, for me, is the kind of the god of rock and roll, the, yeah, the god of culture, really. He's, uh-huh. he's, to me, the greatest living um, uh, cultural figure in the world, I think. Actually. Well, the,
0: um, the uh, Nobel Committee agrees with you.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's just uh, yeah, it's wonderful that he got the Nobel Prize. But I always loved Lou. I mean I loved his sardonic, wise-cracking, edgy, um, you know, New Yorker and persona. So attractive when you're young, you know, kind of a bad boy. And I love the anti-hero, kind of, yes. Yeah, the spoken lyrics and the subject matter and a good writer, you know. I mean I, I one, uh, always like writers as much as musicians. I like people who use words cleverly and certainly Lou You Reed
0: being did that. a a writer yourself, that's no surprise. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I really appreciated that, and I liked the way he used language. And even though he couldn't sing, a like Rex <laughs> Harrison, he kind of spoke the, spoke the songs. You know, you remember know Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. <laughs> yeah. I mean, great star, but he couldn't sing, didn't even pretend to, to sing. Yeah. Lou, would, Lou kind of spoke his way through Transformer, if you remember. Yeah. I just sort of recited the lyrics. Um, but actually, that's a good technique
0: uh maybe when you're when you're working uh in the underground and the uh the darker uh elements of humanity uh that might be a good way to uh to get the experience across huh
2: yeah and it sounds authentic sounds real yeah and he sounded like a real he sounded like he was really telling you something i mean especially on a great song like i'm waiting for the man you really felt ah well this is what this is what it's like to score, to score drugs, like to buy drugs. Right, right, right? You know, as a fourteen-year-old boy in in London. Got well, it. You know, now I know how to do it. All right.
3: Now
0: I know. <laughs> Thanks, Lou. That. Yeah. Well, you know that goes to to something that uh, you know we um, we talk about a lot on our on our various shows, and that is how you know this particular music, uh, you know, in, informed uh, an entire generation, and I I don't believe that it does so. Uh, certainly, to the same degree uh, that it did to the baby boomers/slash Generation X, uh, uh, but uh, today's uh, millennials and uh, Generation Z, I guess, uh, you know, are, are are they they don't look at music and get and get their life lessons from it like we did. Uh, I think it's something different, like social media. Do you agree with that?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, ro- rock and roll. Uh, I was born in '65, and but. For my generation and younger, um, the great rock stars were like the great novelists, and you look forward to Lou reed 's new album or Bob Dylan 's new album, like you look forward to the new John Updike or the new Norman Mailer or iris Murdoch and It was serious culture and you You read the album cover you know you learned these damn things by heart, and also moreover, you associated yourself with an artist, so you kind of became a Bob Dylan person. Or you became a, you know, I don't know, maybe if you went down a different road, you might become a Pink Floyd person. But you you identified with the artist. But it was it was real art. It wasn't just entertainment. It was art and, um, it was mass. And, and of course, these were the days when records sold in big numbers. I mean, poor old Lou never sold in big numbers, <laughs> no, but of course, no. actually that
0: kind of adds to his cachet. It does, thought, doesn't it? Yeah. Well,
2: you know, I I've, I'm into this, but no one else is. So I'm smarter than yeah, everybody else. You
0: are in the special club. Right, right.
2: Yeah. Right. I'm the smart one. I'm not listening to <laughs> earth, wind and fire. You know, I'm listening to the velvet underground in 1969
0: in a yeah. club in Texas. Yeah. 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 Uh, Okay so so to learn a little bit more about you you've you've written uh these three rock and roll biographies but i believe you actually got your start in crime drama uh and not to go too deep into that subject um but did delving into uh that prepare you for Lou Reed's life? Well yeah i guess i, mean, I was a i was a newspaper journalist who broke a big
2: murder story in britain and wrote a best selling crime book which was which made
0: made me... Uh, you and Truman I, I, Capote, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I kind of wish it was as good, <laughs> but I certainly tried to make it Cold as good off. as I could. And it made me some money, and I then left newspapers in my uh, relatively young age. I had enough money to leave the newspaper business and to write books full-time. And in fact, that crime book, I'm now, right now, this month, 25 years later, I'm hosting um, a podcast series about it, and it's the number one podcast in the UK. Uh, and, it's, and indeed, it's it's also very popular in the States. It's called Unheard, the Fred and Rose West Tapes. So although I had this kind of journalistic, but of course, actually a journalistic background um, helps greatly oh, yeah. writing biography because mm-hmm. you... You you know where to go to find the stories. You know how to dig for information, and all my books are very journalistically based. There's a lot of it, a lot of research, a lot of interviews, and I kind of hunt out stories to to make the people come alive. Because as much as as much as the music, the books are about music, they're really about people. So Lou Reed's personality, Lou Reed's life, like Bob Dylan's life in Down the Highway, my my um, first music book. You know Lou, Bob Dylan's life is as important as Bob Dylan's music because that's what biography is. You know, biography is a story of somebody's life.
0: You've also written a biography on on Charles Bukowski, and that probably helped prepare you as well.
2: Yeah, well, that was a that was probably the happiest experience I had as a writer because I loved Bukowski, loved him, loved him, loved him. And when I left the when I left my newspaper to become a, a writer. I spent three years, my first three years as a writer, writing about Bukowski and traveling the States and meeting people like um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti and corresponding with oh, Norman Mailer and Robert Crumb and um, Allen Ginsberg and all these people. And it was just so wonderful to, to, to engage with a, a, such a big personality as Bukowski, but someone who wasn't mass of mass appeal. He was a kind of niche artist, but a great intellectual in his own way. And quite a serious guy, but also very funny, and had a wonderful life. And so I really enjoyed that book, which was called um, uh, Charles Murkowski Locked in the Arms of a Crazy Life. But it didn't make a lot of money. Problem with writing about poets is it's a kind of
0: small market, (laughs) even smaller, even smaller audience than than maybe Lou Reed. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I mean, writing about crime, you realize that you reach a huge
3: market.
2: You know, you sell hundreds of thousands (laughs) of books, you make money, and you have bestsellers. Yeah, you write a book about a poet, and that's the the poet book is the book I'm most proud of. Probably then Dylan, probably then my crime book, Fred and Rose*, but. Um, but you know, the numbers are different, you know, the numbers are different yeah. and you've well, got to make a living, you know? Well,
0: well, what does it say about society that the larger audience is a huge appetite for crime drama as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a visceral, interesting poet?
2: Well, it's, yeah. uh, yeah, it's sad, but the thing about murder is it's elemental. It's the ultimate crime. It moves you. It yeah. amazes you. Your your mouth drops when you hear the, hear the story. Um, but poetry is more subtle. Yeah. Um, maybe poetry is more profound ultimately, but it's, it's not for everybody, you
0: know. Nah, Cain and Abel, I get you. I hear it. I know. Uh, okay, tell our diggers, uh, you know, what, what rock and roll means to you.
2: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I always um, I always sort of blanch at these terms, rock and roll. Um, to me, as a young guy growing up in the 70s, you know, born in the 60s, Rock and roll was a broad term for Roxy music, Bob Dylan, um, Lou Reed, the Velvet Underground, just kind of art rock, really, kind of intelligent rock. Um, so rock and roll, not necessarily Elvis Presley and the you know the history of rock and roll, um, but I liked people who who use language within the within the pop pop the pop format, and of course the ultimate of that is Bob Dylan, but. Probably secondary to Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen. Mm. I mean, they were such great writers. Yeah. And um, you really felt that you were drawn into another world. And their songs were like short stories. And I always loved that about Lou Reed. I mean, I'm waiting for the man. It's a short story, isn't it? And it's absolutely vivid.
0: Yeah. 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 Same with heroin. Uh, You know, uh, the the actual experience of uh, putting together and shooting up a, a drug.
2: Yeah, I mean, very much so. And then, you know, a beautiful song like Pale Blue Eyes. Mm. Um, I mean, some kind of love. I guess The Velvet Underground was my first love. Uh, That's how I got into Lou Reed. So was it um, was it
0: like the first band that you would call your own? Um, I, I yeah. don't know if you have siblings that, older siblings that, you know, handed down uh, your music or your parents or what have you, but yeah. maybe the, the VU was really the, the first band that kind of spoke to you and that was your only discovery, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So my older my sister had a sort of a cassette tape of somebody else's copy of Transformer, which I liked, but... Then I realised that Lou Reed was from the Velvet Underground. It's a bit like David Bowie, fam- you know, famously he, he had that same journey. Yeah. And then you think, well, this is this is the root of the thing. The Velvet Underground was so powerful and so stylish and so sui generis. There's no one like the Velvet Underground. Um, and of course, as I said before, uh, Christian, one felt slightly smug as a smug teenager. No, you know, there was no there was no one else in my class who had heard of the Velvet Underground. Um, but, that, you know, that was a smart choice. That was a yeah. good choice to make at 14.
0: Yeah. And uh, when you shared it, uh, was it accepted?
2: Yeah. I, I, my friends, I think. I mean, I'm, I, I bumped into an old friend the other day. I'm now in my 50s. And I bumped into an old friend the other day and was a, a suddenly amazed how fat he'd become. And that he had gray hair and glasses. <laughs> but, of course, you know, I'm sure he felt the same. And, uh, you know, he was he was telling me, burbling on about how he was listening in his in his millionaire mansion in Middle Age, to Frank Zappa and Lou Reed and all these people that I told him about
0: you when we were teenagers. These doors, that's nice. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, and right. indeed,
2: and to be fair, he he was the one who turned me on to Luke, to Bob Dylan.
0: Ah, oh, oh, okay, so it was a, a, yeah, a yeah. mutual uh, appreciation uh, there. Yeah. Okay. So you've been working on this book since 2013, and I believe you interviewed over 140 associates of the the late Lou Reed who passed on October 27th of the same year. Is that right?
2: I I forget, but I guess so. Maybe even more. Um, That's generally what I do. I do tend to try to speak to lots of people.
0: And and this sounds like a a dedicated detective story. Um, So, you know, uh, I've read a few uh, uh, books on on Lou uh, in the past. Where, Where do you differ on what others have said about Lou in print before? Um, well, when I,
2: I, I I'm not so familiar with the, the the new books that have come out since he died because they they're kind of my competitors mm-hmm. and I haven't read them all mm-hmm. because I don't want to be too involved with them. But when I wrote my book, I look back to the very early books about Lou Reed, which were pretty poor. There was a book by Peter Doggett, I remember, which was pretty lame. Um, published maybe about 1990. Um, yeah, not, not a well-known book, but there weren't many, there were, oh, and there was of course, Victor Bocras's book, which was quite good. Actually. I thought I quite like Victor Bocras 's book, but it was very much out of date by the time I wrote mine.
0: So uh, I, I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that uh, anyone even remotely familiar with uh, his work would disagree that Lou was a complicated man, uh, a difficult person. And and, and that kind of seems to be the main theme of the book, right?
2: Well, it- I suppose so. It didn't happen by design. Um, so off, off one goes. Off, I, off I go in yeah. my hire car. The in story America, is what you know. the
0: story is. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm, I'm driving around America, but banging on doors in the snow in winter in you know upstate New York and and you know thereabouts, and also over in California. And you're speaking to people that knew Lou, grew up with Lou, worked with Lou, or in his band, who managed him, who you know all sorts of people, girlfriends, boyfriends, blah blah blah, and. A surprising number of them, unprompted by me, said he was a horrible guy. He was a prick. <laughs> yeah. He was an unpleasant, obnoxious person.
0: Yeah, over and um, over again.
2: Uh, oh, over and over yes. again. I mean, most most famously and funnily, uh, Paul Morrissey, uh, yes. Andy Warhol's um, associate, told me, you know, there's a great quote in the book. Um, he said, he said to me in his kind of camp nasal voice, he said, "What are you going to call the book?" And I said, oh, "I, I had some pretentious title like, you know, <laughs> Notes from the Subway Underground." And he said, um, "Oh no, you should call it, you know, The Bitch
3: <laughs> <laughs> or the Biggest Bitch in History <laughs> yeah, or something."
2: Because yeah, yeah, yeah. he was a horrible human being. Yeah. And yeah. Um, he just came out of all this hate, and it was actually quite funny. And I put it in the book, and I—it's a—it's the—I a, think it's the best quote in the book. It's quite early on in the book.
3: It is, yeah, um, yeah,
0: that's pretty uh, nice Yeah. Thing. So your book seems to break Lou's life into several eras, or I'm going to kind of break the questioning down into this as as best I can. Uh, you know, first growing up, a, a suburban middle class kid uh yeah. and then the velvets and the factory with Vorhal, uh kind of the lost 70s uh and then calming down uh in marriage to Sylvia morales during the 80s uh finally this disrupt, this redemption and bliss with Laurie anderson until his untimely death at 71 does, does that kind of sound accurate uh
2: yeah i guess so i mean i think there's quite a lot on the early velvet underground era for t- for because for me, that's really where the good work is.
0: Yeah, and the, then the the the, uh, the 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 first iteration with John Cale, right?
2: Yeah, well, even up to, even after John Cale, really. I mean, the two albums the,
3: afterwards. Okay. Yeah, the
2: albums afterwards uh-huh. are really good. Uh-huh. Um, and um, so for me, that's really the that's the where all the great, the really great songs are. But then he then he then comes the solo career. And you see him...
0: A lot of mixed uh, uh, Yeah, situation. kind
2: of to some extent selling out. A bit like when Rod Stewart left the faces. I mean, Rod Stewart was the most fantastically brilliant, authentic, ballsy blues singer up until the time when he met Britt Eklund and moved to <laughs> Manhattan and recorded Atlantic Crossing. And then he became kind of schlock. Mm. And, and I think Lou Reed was at some point in his own little way in the sort of 1973... He kind of teetered over into schlock as well.
0: Uh, Perhaps, perhaps. We will see. So growing up uh, in the book, uh, my takeaway was that unlike a lot of what Lou said during his own interviews, um, that his childhood was rather that of a normal suburban kid in post-war America, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh,
2: yes, indeed, yes. New, New York Jewish, um, m- middle class suburban. Yeah,
0: yeah. Nothing, nothing special. Nothing, uh, you know, would uh, mark him as early genius. Uh, I would say, right? No, I mean, just the just this weird
2: experience where he, had this, he has this kind of mental breakdown and the ECT treatment of course which is
0: yeah yeah so so he he goes to nyu um uh and and enters the city uh and in his first semester that's when he suffers this mental illness um and in a weird sort of way uh that seems to be like the 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 most significant moment in 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 his life um uh, he goes on to reinvent himself into a character not unlike those that he liked to write about, right?
2: Yeah, yes, and he he uses that experience, that traumatic experience of having the breakdown and, and the ECT, which he blames Wait, on electroshock his
3: therapy for. Uh,
2: yeah, electro. For yeah, right, Everyone rem- will remember the mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson scene in in uh, one Fear of the yeah, Cooper's Nest. Yeah. So, and he writes a famous song about it called "Kill Your Sons," which he he kind of blames his dad. Uh, for putting him through that whereas one of the things i think i kind of got worked through in the book is that really the parents were unfairly blamed by lou and they were doing their very best for a a disturbed unhappy boy um and dad dad wasn't such a bad guy actually
0: no um you know uh lou is used um uh, you know, said that uh, the the reason his parents, uh, you know, agreed to this electroshock therapy was because of his uh, perhaps homosexual tendencies, um, but that's not really the case, uh, from what I gathered in 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 your book, right? Well, it's it's not what
2: his sister. So he had he had one sibling, Bunny. Yeah, Bunny, who is still alive and you know, beautiful, sweet, lovely person. And um, Bunny doesn't remember it like that. So she quite she doesn't remember that sex being any issue whatsoever. It was a it was really Lou having a kind of for uh, maybe whatever a deep reason depression
0: uh, that you know yeah, uh, kind of a
2: breakdown depression sort of fell apart in college, came home as a sort of gibbering wreck, couldn't they, handle college.
0: They took him to professionals, and this is what the professionals suggested, right?
2: Yeah, and it was, and it was, of course, the, the era of ECT. So that's how you treated severe depression. You gave people electric shocks, and it was more, much more common then than it is now. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very frightening and severe. Um, I mean, my father actually had it, and I remember, I, I remember being frightened as his son. I mean, I just, the whole thing was so terrifying. But it, it's, um, but Lou. Um, Lou, I think Lou, like a lot of artists, used it as grit for the mill. It was something to use and kind of get angry about. And one of his girlfriends says in the book, you know, Lou was all, the first thing Lou said when he met people afterwards was, you know, I'm I'm different to everyone else. You know, I've had ECT. You know, I've I've been to the the nut house. You know, I'm a I'm a difficult, I'm a edgy kind of a person. So it made it made him different to other. 19 year olds 20 year olds 21 year olds
0: well it it is an unusual experience uh you know and you know as we've established uh you know lou was just a kind of a general normal suburban kid in long island uh uh and then this occurs uh and uh his life seems very different afterwards it does seem to be a huge inflection point in his life right
2: Yeah. I mean, amazing, isn't it, though, that how how many great American rock and roll artists of that generation are from these middle class Jewish immigrant families? I mean, Bob Dylan is from almost exactly the same family in Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, And it's obviously there's some there's a kind of there's a mix of, of, of there's a mix there of probably nurturing parents, a bit of money um you know books in the house um you know clever a clever kid picks up a guitar i mean lou Reed, bob dylan at age 18 they're kind of the same person although lou the sex sex makes them a bit different
0: yeah yeah Uh, um uh, but but the fact is is that like uh you can do in america uh just reinvent yourself uh into whatever you damn well please
2: Yeah. yeah 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 i mean I mean, I mean, Lewis, of course. Lewis Reed becomes Lou Reed, and <laughs> yeah, Bobby yeah. Zimmerman becomes Bob Dylan, and, yeah. um, and neither Eric- can really sing, <laughs> and both are pretty rudimentary musicians, but they become these remarkable sort of pied pipers. Um, these these they become so important in our. In our, in our cultural
0: life. Yeah, in the latter half of the 20th century, origina- originators, uh, originals, there's there's no two ways about it. So, you know, but you mentioned, uh, you know, a big difference between, you know, Bob and, and Lou is is the sexuality uh, side, side of things. And I, I'm not one to care about a person's sexuality, but with Lou as a pur- public person, uh, <clears throat> he is a very interesting case. Uh, several times he he made it known that he was gay but throughout his life, he was almost always in relationships with women and, and married three times. Uh, and except for his fairly public relationship with Rachel Humphreys, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that that Lou was fluid sexually and therefore, again, ahead of his time, which is more of an accepted uh, fact these days, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um... I mean he he's married to this person whom you refer to as, as Rachel Humphreys, who is this um I mean it's not I'm not quite sure how to describe I say it. I guess he would be I married
0: mean, four times then if 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 Rachel's, Yeah,
2: I mean Rachel, uh, Rachel was, was, was essentially born as Richard. He yes. a guy who lived as a girl. Um I am not sure what the what the phrase for that is now. Um but you know, Lou loved her and married Rachel and there's a picture in the book of them cutting a wedding cake. Uh, it wasn't a um, legally binding. Um, uh, it was like nineteen seventy six, I think. Yeah, 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 in London. Uh, but they were a couple, and he gave a, he gave um, Lou gave Rachel a ring, and so on and so forth. Um, and so that was very ahead of his time. I mean, of course, Lou was from his background was in the factory in New York, so he wasn't a stranger to alternative lifestyles he was in the forefront of that but then as you say he kind of rose back on that so around around about 1978 he's living above the um the famous gay bar in christopher street in greenwich village stonewall um, stonewall Stonewall, yeah Mm -hmm. and he's you know he's living as a gay man and he gives interviews to the village voice and new york times saying i'm a gay man blah 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 and you know fuck you if you don't like it but then he kind of rose back from that and never speaks about his sexuality again. Around the time, around the time he stops drinking, about 1980, makes the New York album, uh, and then he lives as a kind of apparently straight man for the rest of his life. And as you say, married three times, to, latterly to Laurie Anderson.
0: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so it, it's, it, it's, it, it's an informing piece of his life. It is, um, uh, like I said, um, he appears to be uh, uh, fluid in his sexuality and um, doesn't really care uh, about it. And, and again, uh, in public, which is highly, highly unusual for its time.
2: Yeah, I, I don't agree that he didn't care about it. I get the, I got the impression I, I, he didn't poem, care what
0: people thought about it. I meant
2: to. say. Well, I'm not sure about that. I mm-hmm. got the impression he did care, and he mm-hmm. was try- and he was, mi- he was mixed up about it, and he was. He gives, he gives some very catchy interviews, circa 1980 onwards. When if he's ever asked about his sexuality, he just, he just closes down the interview. He says, "Look, I'm not talking about that." And if anyone ever spoke, mentioned Rachel to him again. He would just ignore them, blank them. Um, so I think he was—I think he I'm not sure he was that comfortable with it. And of course, he was in show business, so he's in this uh, situation where he's—he has to sell himself. Um, and maybe he thought it was a problem in the 70s and the 80s having that background, because he certainly seems to have, have stopped talking about it around the time he, he made that great. Uh, album for for Arista, um, uh, the New York album, right? Which was I forget what year now, but it was a sort of turning point in his career.
0: Uh, I think that's a later 80s if I remember right. So, yeah. um, so I, I want to get uh, your thoughts on something um uh that is Lou as a pop song writer. His his first real gig is with Picnic uh excuse me, Pickwick Records as a house mm. writer, which not too dissimilar to uh, another middle class Jewish uh uh young man, uh his contemporary Paul Simon. Um mm. so in the end would it be fair to say that Lou was really a pop song writer and uh in a lot of ways he and paul simon have similarities in fact paul even plays his memorial service right
2: yeah well he was said he was a very good pop song writer, wasn't he mm-hmm. and he had a, a great pop sensibility and he always loved um top 40 stuff and he loved that but, I, but there was another side to him which was intellectual poetic Um, you know, more experimental. And and that again, I think is a conflict in his, in his life. So I guess he's famous. To the benefit
0: of us though.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a big difference between a song like Heroin, of course, and uh, his biggest pop hit, which is what, I don't know, Walk on the Wild Side, of Mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. I mean, one is polished and smooth and radio friendly and the other is long and and baggy and full of outre <laughs> words and difficult music. And one is the antithesis of the other, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, there, there, there appears to be a lot of conflict in the mind of Lou Reed.
2: Yeah, I'm sure there was. And perhaps that's what makes him interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, most artists are difficult people. Um, you know, but Lou he, is
0: exceptionally so reading your book.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think difficult. But I, and I think also there's money, you know. Um, Lou's in show business. So he wanted to make a living. Mm. And he didn't make a living in the Velvet Underground. I mean, the Velvet Underground were w- one of the greatest bands of the 60s, weren't they? Looking back. They made nothing, right?
3: They
2: made nothing. I mean, the week of the Woodstock Festival when uh, Santana and um, Crosby, Stills and Nash were playing in, in upstate New York to h- hundreds of thousands of people, Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground were playing in a bar in massachusetts to like 30 people right now right. but in terms of their influence and their status the vote underground seemed every bit as important as santana and the, and Stores and nash but mm-hmm. in terms of popularity they made no money and he was broke and he was pissed off and he wanted to make make a living and in fact he struggled to make a living for a very very long time and never became a rich never never became an elton john or Bob Dylan or a Mick Jagger. I mean, he was just not in the same league financially.
0: Well, yeah. Who knows? Maybe, maybe he had uh, you know he made it into this late last decade, uh, which we're coming to a close. Where, where you know, a lot of these um, folks are being elevated. They're finally getting the recognition of of high art of uh, of what we're talking about, and 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 the significant cultural um uh marks that uh that they made uh, in their life maybe 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 lou would have would have uh had a residency in uh, las vegas uh sometime in the last uh decade
2: yeah <laughs> yeah i mean I, who knows how people what people would have done ultimately yeah but yeah. um I mean, I mean i remember him moaning in his latter career that when he went on tour in europe as he did every summer as all those guys do playing festivals and things he would be given suites in hotels that were bigger than his New York apartment.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So before we get to the Velvets era, um, uh, after Lou's breakdown at NYU, he goes upstate to study at Syracuse. Um, but here is where he meets his first real uh, mentor, um, I believe Delmore Schwartz, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, so Delmore Schwartz, a name that's not widely known now, but who was considered to be one of the the great writers of his day and famous for his short stories
0: uh and you know what, what what do you think lou took away from that time
2: well he seems to have been invigorated by meeting a, a really first rate writer um uh, who lived on his own terms didn't compromise didn't sell out um wrote real real literature, and was a bit bit embittered by his his lack of success of worldly success and also a tragic figure. I mean, Delmore Shorts was an alcoholic Mm -hmm. and a drug addict and died young, etc. And so I'm sure that was romantic to young Lou kind of hanging around this older guy who was a great writer, but was living in this sort of sad state um, and and teaching at Syracuse to pay the bills.
0: He also has his first real love affair uh, there with Shelley Albin, Right.
2: Yeah. um, My experience writing biography I've written 10 biographies, and my experience, and every one I've interviewed, hundreds of people, so I travel the world finding people, interviewing people. My experience invariably is that women are the people to speak to, and ex-girlfriends, ex-wives are are the best people to speak to because they know the subject better than anybody. Intimately. And they are are candid. Women speak about the men in their life, with a candour and an insight that other men don't, you know, so there's a, there's a sort of reality to it. I mean, they know these guys personally, you know, sexually, obviously uh, intellectually, personally on every level, they know all their, they know their flaws. Um, they know their strengths and 30 years on when you meet them as late middle aged people or elderly people, they're usually very straightforward and honest, and they don't hold back. Whereas guys are much cagier and would prefer to talk about football or car mechanics than talk about emotions.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. So let's get to the inescapable portion of the Lou Reed story, and that is, of course, the Velvet Underground period, of which you do spend uh, quite a bit of time on in the book, uh, thankfully. Uh, A a favorite rock and roll story because they were so far ahead of their time. You know, everyone knows the story of meeting John Cale, an extraordinary musician on the bleeding edge uh, uh, of the time, uh, such as uh, Music Concrete. Um, But coupled now with Lou, who has these pop sensibilities and this lyrical interest of the darker side of the human experience Uh, and along with uh, an an unusual drummer in Mo Tucker and rock guitar Sterling Morrison. Um, So, you know, I could ask a million questions on this uh, period, but what might be better is if I open a more general line of questioning and ask, you know, what you discovered, um, what may have escaped the common narrative of the band.
2: Well, I think um, their amazing lack of popularity, their sort of dismaying lack of popularity, the fact they were playing bars. Um, there is one of my favorite albums of all, of any artist ever, is the 1969 Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground live album, that double album with the blue, with the mm. green cover. Mm-hmm. And if you, and if anyone listening knows it, you, just, you remember listening to it, and there's this kind of smattering of applause, and Lou at one point says. Do you want us to play, you know, one set or two sets? Because what time are you going home? And you realize that literally there—it's a room with maybe ten people sitting on cushions. So this this titanic band, this enormous, this yeah, the most one of the most important bands of the sixties is playing to a room, and no one knows no one knows who the hell they are.
0: And that was constant. Um, that was that 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 was not unusual.
2: Yeah, that was not unusual. That was constant. Uh, and the other thing I, I, I thought that i certainly learned writing the book although if i didn't know it before was that he difficult persona his difficult personality his competitive combative combative personality was was right evident right there and there indeed the only person in the underground whom he really got on with in the long term was was mo tucker because lovely mo who's the sweetest person you're ever going to meet just didn't compete with him and was happy just to go along but the, you know, Lou just made the other guy's lives a misery and, um, you know, really never. And when they had that reunion in the 90s, it was a
3: terrible,
2: terrible experience for them all because Lou behaved so badly.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, <clears throat> of course, got to bring up Andy Warhol uh, for good and bad, um, you know, because he was a huge presence in Lou's life and a, a second mentor or even perhaps a father figure, right?
2: Yeah, um and it, Andy Warhol's a great character in American 20th century oh, yes. cultural life, isn't he? He's and, he, and he's a great person to write about. Mm-hmm. He's so interesting. Mm-hmm. He did really good work and he just had all these interesting people around him and um and he was he's enigmatic. He doesn't seem to sort of say much or do much and yet he's the center of everything. Um and a, amongst the many things that what one admires about Andy Warhol is that he had the vision and the, the good taste to see that this little band he saw in a coffee shop in, in Greenwich Village one night with Paul Morrissey, you know, play, playing between, just playing in the background um, for $5 a night or just their hamburgers. <laughs> this was the Velvet Underground, and he liked them. He liked the fact that there was a girl drum, he liked the fact that John Carroll played the viola. He liked the fact that Lou Reed was quite good looking and above and beyond that, they had a, they had their own sound and look. And as, as Andy Warhol said famously in his diaries, the problem with with Lou Reed later on in the seventies and eighties is that he stopped being himself. He started to, to become a kind of every man showbiz figure. Uh, but in the Velvets, he was unique. You know, the Velvets were unique for whatever reason. And that's really, that's, that's all you need to know about them. They were just themselves.
0: And Andy recognized that and wanted to make them uh, a part of his uh, multimedia um, experience, uh, the exploding plastic inevitable, right?
2: Yeah, which I think if I had a, a time machine to go go through history to hear <laughs> one to concert ever, <laughs> I think it would be the, the exploding plastic inevitable in New York, in whatever that was, in the mm. Dom in that Polish club, because mm. it sounds so extraordinary, you know? Mm. I mean, it just sounds, It was it's it's art, it's kind of mixed media art going, you know. Again, way a ahead of its and time,
0: uh, and, yeah. I, and I think it was confusing to a lot of people who did actually get to uh, experience uh, that uh, particular um, uh, incarnation of the Velvets.
2: Yeah, I, I, I gather that uh, Frank Sinatra went one night, I think when he was dating Mia Farrow. Oh, now that and, I have
0: never heard, really.
2: Can you, apparently, can you imagine Mia Farrow and Sinatra walking into this hearing, you know, seeing Lee Reed on stage with his shades on, with his back to the audience probably, <laughs> uh, playing um, Heroin, and the lights and the strobe lights and Billy Name and Jeremy oh, like Langer trudge, doing the whip
3: yeah, the whip.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Frank was a cool guy
0: himself. I'm sure he just said, oh, hey,
2: hey, cool. hey, Mia, you know.
3: Cool, right. <laughs> <laughs> I dig it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So after uh, uh, two albums, well, first Nico, uh, you know, was forced on the band uh and i know lou hated that uh she only lasted uh one album uh john cale leaves after the second album or is forced to leave <laughs> depending on who, you, who who who's telling the story i guess and then lou continues with sterling and mo for two more albums uh none and, and doug you yeah and doug Ewell comes in right right uh, none of these albums make much of a dent on the charts but conversely all are hugely influential and capture the attention of future rocketers most notably David Bowie so let's get into the 70s um so lose life as the velvet's disintegrated but uh maybe that was just it's time right
2: um yeah i mean i think he he also he he, he had a kind of a, a second breakdown at the end yeah, of the Velvet underground a
3: breakdown yeah yeah. He
2: goes home to his parents in, on Long Island, and he basically just gives up and hides in his room. Um, and then he's encouraged by friends like the lo- wonderful Danny Fields, you know, the well-known Yeah. Um, oh, Danny uh, Fields. The, the,
0: you know. light, the world would be very different if it wasn't for Danny Fields in a lot of yeah. ways. So, so, yeah, so da-
2: people like Danny kind of encourage Lou to come out and make demos and circulate them. And And then, of course, David Bowie, who's this rising star from England – just about signing sign to RCA at this time in America, and Bowie, um, Bowie loves Lou. Bowie was Bowie's from very much the same background as me, suburban South London. Mm-hmm. He's older. He was older than me, of course, and I can imagine. Are you what Bowie, from, can, yeah,
0: from Bromwich, Right.
2: From Bro, well, he was from Bromley, which was like Bromwich, three miles I mean. from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, middle-class suburban South London, a bit like growing up on Long Island for, mm-hmm. with Lou Reed. And of course, you're listening to these, these faraway voices, like the underground, and completely trans, transfixed. And when Bowie um, signed to RCA, he, he said, I want to meet Lou Reed. And not realizing that at this stage, Lou Reed was working for his dad as a typist <laughs>
3: right. uh, because
2: his career was just, you know, In it, shambles. Yeah, finished.
0: Yeah. So uh, now the first album uh, uh, that you get signed to RCA and the first album uh, was a bit of a bust. Uh, but then the second album, which is produced by uh, not only uh, David Bowie, but uh, Mick Ronson as well, uh, is Transformer. And this revives his career and, and actually is maybe most responsible for keeping Lou in the public sphere for the rest of his life, wouldn't you say?
2: yeah um it's got the one hit on it walk on the wild side it's got the the kind of almost hit which is perfect day which everyone knows yeah um it sounds great it's produced as you say by bowie and mick ronson um it's got it's got rick wakeman playing the piano it's full of london session musicians of the day who were all well known in their own right and it was made in soho in london uh, where in the studio in Trident where the Beatles made um Hey Jude. Um sounds brilliant. I mean London was the center of the rock and roll world at the time. And it was as big a hit as he ever as he ever had. Mm. Um although it's the, the funny thing about it as I point out in the book is that Walk on the Wild Side is a, you know, a lovely song. I love it myself, who doesn't? It's, but it, and it's what people know, it's what the general public know, but it sounds unlike anything else he that ever, he ever did, recorded right, in his before, entire after, career. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, well, that's because, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, Bowie took his, uh, his simple composition and then, you know, enhanced it sonically so that it became very palatable to, uh, you know, the, the ears of uh, the pop audience, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, put strings on it and that saxophone and the backing singers, the coloured girls who go dupe to dupe. Yeah. I, who I weren't yeah, coloured girls? I found the coloured
0: girls.
2: <laughs> yeah. A they're not coloured girls, they're white. <laughs> right. Uh, the one I found is a is an Irish um Irish British um late middle aged lady living in retirement in Cambridge in with her, her husband and she, she I went to see her and she gave me lunch and it was the most suburb, most suburban bourgeois experience you can possibly imagine. <laughs> and she was one of the she was one of the alleged colored, colored girls. girls.
0: Right, right, right. That's crazy. I loved that story in the book. Um but you know as much as as, as the song doesn't sound like uh, anything that uh, Lou did uh, before or after, it still seems to kind of encapsulate his life in four minutes.
2: It it does. You're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's mainstream and radio friendly, but at the same time, there is a real sense of New York in the factory days with all those crazy people, Joe DeLisandro and Candy and all those, all those sketchy marginal, but, kind of brilliant people um who are so exciting there's a there's a real sense of of lose america about oh, it
3: yeah and
2: it's yeah. and it's it's real so despite the fact it's it's made radio friendly and overdubbed with strings and all the rest of it um yeah it's authentic isn't it it's real and of course he slip, he slips in a reference to oral sex
1: that's
0: right
2: no, nobody noticed in britain on the bbc where it was It was a much bigger hit in the UK than it was in the States. It rose much higher in the charts. so It was played on the BBC, on the top 40, Uh, no one noticing that giving head meant... Oral
0: sex. Well, I, apparently the BBC does this every once in a while because um, since we're on the subject of Bowie, you know, they, they used a Space Oddity for the soundtrack for the moon landing. Probably not a wise idea. Uh, and I think they figured that out after a couple of weeks. And
2: yeah. It, well, they're, they're, fam- they're famous <laughs> for making these mistakes and then rather naively and charmingly sort of yeah. not understanding what's going on, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's about, oh my God, it's about that. Oh, we shouldn't be playing this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now, now uh, of course, we got to talk. A little bit about Lou and 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 Bowie's uh, very interesting relationship because you know it starts off as uh, you know a, a, a fawning acolyte uh, and then reverses to uh, where uh, you know uh, without uh, David Bowie's direction I I, I I don't think we would be talking much about Lou Reed today.
2: Well, I guess so. If Transformer hadn't been so beautifully produced um, and. Bowie had not mentored Lou and brought him on stage at his shows and so forth. And probably, yeah, Lou's solo career would have died on its arse. Um, but Lou was jealous of oh, Bowie's great yeah. success.
0: Giants. Success. I mean, Bowie was already... He he becomes the ultimate of uh, both a huge giant pop star. You know that could, if he were still alive today, could easily compete with people like Elton John that we talked about, uh, or the Stones uh, and command that sort of attention. But at the same time, you know, have these highly intelligent lyrics uh, that took you to really strange and unusual places.
2: Yeah, yeah. So and, and he had a kind of and he had a charisma. Uh, that Lou lacked, actually. If you, I don't know if you ever saw Lou played live. I mean, despite the fact that yeah, I loved yeah, Lou I from did, yeah. when I was and, a kid,
0: Bowie, yes. Uh,
2: Lou had no charisma on stage. He was, he was lumpen. He was solemn. He kind of, he wasn't full of. He wasn't. He didn't really. You weren't transfixed by him like Bowie or Dylan no. or
0: Mick Jagger. Mm.
2: He didn't have that. Didn't have that. He didn't have charisma at all. And uh, he although a lot of people sort
0: of... made it sound like he did, uh, uh, you know, or they or they wrote about it like this was some, uh, you know, transcendental experience to see this. And I agree with you. It's uh, it was a bit of a disappointment.
2: Yeah, I think he was a disappointment live. I mean, I, the music, you forgave him for the quality of his songs. You loved him for the quality of his songs and for what he achieved with the Velvets. Uh, and a few great solo albums along the way, but actually on stage he was he was disappointing.
3: Um,
2: I, he, he, the first time I saw him, I was disappointed, and um, I don't say that with any you know ulterior motive. He just wasn't a charismatic performer.
0: No, whereas uh, conversely, uh, you know David Bowie could you know get a uh, an arena of eighteen thousand people to not say a word while he spoke. So, <laughs>
2: totally, yeah, totally you, different. It exuded yeah. glamour, um, and he knew how to how to use that glamour. I think, but uh, Reed was always a slightly awkward gauche. Use a French word, a gauche character. Um, not at ease in his own skin. And you've got that sense with him, really. And it wasn't in a way that was kind of sexy and cool as it, as it is with perhaps I don't know, Brando or Bob Dylan. It was kind of awkward and could be a little bit annoying.
0: I, I love the, uh, the, the story about the two of them getting uh, into a... I, I I won't call it a fist fight, uh, but a slap uh, fest, uh, if you <laughs> if you will, uh, at a later date, later in the seventies, uh, which you know I guess goes to show how fraught their relationship uh, ended up.
2: Yeah, it's one of the. It was one of the fun. When you write a book, some scenes are really fun to write mm-hmm. because you have you know they're they're dramatically good and you have good information. So this was when Lou was on tour with his own band in London and Bowie came to see him at the Hammersmith Odeon and they went out for dinner afterwards and Bowie was really a big star and Lou was struggling and he was kind of about to lose his record deal and he was drinking as well and he said, and Bowie came to the, the dinner afterwards in Knightsbridge and Lou, Lou drinking heavily said, look, you know, will you produce my next record? Let's have another hit like Transformer and Bowie said to uh, Lou, well, I will if you clean your act up, uh, Lou. You know, because you're you're pissed, and Lou got offended and slapped him, <laughs> and and the whole and the whole band was there. So actually, I interviewed the whole band, and there were like twenty witnesses to this fight. And the drummer was there, the bass guitarist, you know, the guitarist. They were all there. And they sort of jumped up from their lasagna and said, Lou, Lou, leave David Bowie alone. And they kind of calmed him down. But he was so drunk. when he, They calmed him down, sat him down. But then he got up and hit him again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Then, the funny, then the funny coda to the story is they yes. all then go back to their hotel and... <laughs> And they're in the hotel room, Lou's suite with the band and Lou's girlfriend and the whole entourage, you know, sort of listening to tapes of the show and there's a knock on the door and it's Bowie coming to come back calling him out
0: yeah calling him <laughs> out <laughs> he's coming out and
2: fight like a man you know <laughs> so it's pure comedy
0: oh that now you know going back in time I would have loved to have seen that It'd been a fly on the wall for for that so there's so much we could go into in the 70s period uh, it, it gets very dark for Lou and, and it seems mostly due to his drug and alcohol use a typical rock star story so let's stay away from that but um, I want to highlight and compare and contrast something uh, with you here. Uh, the first is the live album "Rock and Roll Animal," um, famously with Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner on guitar, uh, and I think you got to speak to both of them too. Um, and this to me is like perfect Lou Reed. He's there snarling and nasty, but with a kick-ass band that just I, it can't be beat. Do you agree with that?
2: Well, um, I, I never liked the album. I mean, I, I like the album. I know what you mean. I like the album as a bit of rock pantomime rock, but it's it's not Lou Reed, is it? It's it's Lou Reed with a kind of uh, it's Lou Reed with Van Halen behind him. I mean, it's just not Lou <laughs> okay, Reed. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I my favorite live albums are Take No Prisoners, 1969, um, but Lou Reed uh, Rock and Roll Animal. It, it was very popular. And it sounds great, as you say, Dick Hunter and, and Wagner and Precious John, the um, the bass guitarist. They were all superb musicians.
3: Uh huh. Um,
2: but I must say, it's not for me a great Lou Reed album. It's a kind of it's another atypical Lou Reed album.
0: Uh, okay. that doesn't
2: really, it's not really of his of his typical of his work.
0: Well, let's let's compare and contrast that to Metal Machine Music, which yeah, I believe well. is actually a giant. Fuck you, from Lou. That turns into a huge cult favorite, in, intentional or not. I don't know. Have you, have you listened to it, Christian? I've listened to parts of it.
2: <laughs> I listened to it ho- the whole way through for the book because I felt I should, you know. I felt I really. And had how did you, you feel
0: afterwards?
2: I, I felt like I, <laughs> I probably did a bit of sort of household chores while it was on, you know.
0: <laughs> But it is. It I was. Is, I, was
2: it, I was glad it was over. You Never know, <laughs> right, do it again. Right.
0: right. Uh, it's. It's not on the current playlist, is what you're telling me. Um, yeah. So, well, perhaps you, perhaps you should explain why. Because I don't think people yes, know this. please. Further. No. It, it. But it, it is. Uh, and. And. And again. Um. I, I. think. Uh. He had. He had one more album. He had to deliver. And uh, basically, he had all of his amps uh, carted up to uh, his rooftop uh, uh, apartment, uh, turned them all onto eleven, uh, in true Spinal Tap fashion. Uh, laid a guitar in the middle and recorded four hours of this. Right?
2: Yeah. Of feedback, no lyrics. No, no just beats, just nothing. Nothing. No tune. Just no words. Just feedback. Just feedback. Yeah. Just from... White noise. White noise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yet, this goes on to become, uh, a, a, you know, a, uh, a a an album where he ends up embracing it, right? Even though it, this was basically uh, a, a a a fuck off to uh, to the record company uh, in, in, that he intentionally made, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think drugs you know <laughs> I, think, I think drugs are really a big part of this uh, this is this is lou reed and he's drug mania where he's he's taking masses of speed every day and he's out of his mind he's not sleeping for days on end yeah. and he's just you know he's out of his mind on drugs for,
0: for years you know yeah but I, I i can't believe the record company would go oh all right let's put this out
2: well, it, it, it's probably, a, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, it couldn't happen now, but no, maybe in the, no in the 70s, when they were selling so many units, I mean, I, I certainly interviewed the RCA executives for the book, and I think, from memory, they say something like, well, we, we put it out on on the red label, which was the classical label, I think, of RCA, just to sort of keep Lou happy, and just with his name alone, we'd sell a few thousand, and
0: it yeah he, really was, he was always, seemed, he was always it seemed he was always a a prestige signing uh later on in life
2: yeah he didn't it didn't really cost much to make it cost nothing to make, so the <laughs> overhead was really low you know <laughs> unlike berlin yeah. you know Berlin cost a fortune to make it was uh-huh. a bob Ezrin production with yeah, yeah. choirs and and guest stars and uh, i think um Stevie Winwood was flown in, and the thing just went on for ages and it cost a fortune, but metal machine music cost nothing. Lou made it in his apartment. You know, yeah. with, a, with his with his own amp.
0: Yeah, his own amp and his own guitar, and probably not even an engineer is needed at that point. So just... No, just, yeah,
2: indeed, yeah, he just sort of gave the tape to RCA and they put it in, a, and then just some schmuck in the art department <laughs> made a sleeve, and that was it.
0: <laughs> so over and over, Lou has these working relationships, usually with younger acolytes, where he now becomes the mentor. And almost all of them, maybe all of them, um, there's a pattern you expose, uh, a young talent where he first bonds with them, tolerates them for a time uh, where he ends up cooling to them and then either fires them or makes them quit and forgets about them forever, right?
2: Yeah, there's a there's a whole stream of young guys, often musicians, but they can just be runners or they, you know, they can be anybody really um, who has this experience where Lou kind of almost has a crush on them. Thinks they're great. He's going to draw them into his world, and then he turns on them and treats them abysmally, and they end up. They all end up hating him. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. hating him.
0: Yeah, this is the constant theme in the book. It's almost everybody you talk to, uh, with the exception of uh, uh, some of the women, were uh, just especially with the men. Um, there, there's just uh, it's 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 astounding uh, at at how um freely uh, an open uh, hostility <laughs> there, there appears. Yeah, but uh, you
3: make a, you
2: make a very good point, Christian. The women and and as really my previous point about women being much yeah. much better interviewees, the women actually are not of this mindset usually. So yeah. Mo Tucker yeah, you knew Lou better than anyone, really. And she loved him and yeah. she loved him. And they were, she thought he was a sweetheart. And she took him, she took him on his own terms. You know, he was going to be the boss. He was going to tell her what to do. He was going to be a prick. And now and again, she'd tell him off. But she was always, he, it was always Mo and Lou and exchange They were friends. You know, there was no sex. There was no rivalry. Um, they were they were friends until he died. One mm-hmm. of the very few, one of the last people he contacted was 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 Mo, yeah. and um and some of the women in his life, you know, God knows he treated them badly, but they still loved him.
0: Yeah. So in the eighties, Lou goes through the process of getting sober to bearing success. Uh, he dumps Rachel uh, and marries uh, another woman, uh, Sylvia Morales, who like Rachel and. And maybe this is a theme as well: is is a lover who ends up running Lou's life.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's another thing. He he's, he has a management issue throughout his life. He's always badly managed. He hates his managers. <laughs> you know, I've, I've spent my life as a writer hating my agents, and I, I guess that's that goes with the territory you know, Lou hates his managers, hates his record company, thinks they're all crooks, they're all out to steal from him, which they probably are. <laughs> and he's endlessly firing them, suing them, taking them to court. Yeah. And yeah. in the midst of all this, this angst and anger and hatred, he, he decides repeatedly, oh, well, well, with Sylvia, you know, why doesn't my wife manage me? And of course, that ends badly too yeah. but of course, there's, a, there's a brief honeymoon period and then and then suddenly the wife is the manager and he hates and he hates his manager and why can't you get me on mtv and why am i sitting in the wrong seat on the airplane you know and why you know, why aren't i invited to the academy awards and all this crap that is actually goes on day in day out with people like me Reed.
0: until they just run out of steam uh, or he gets rid of them uh, one of the two
2: yeah and yeah I mean but but Sylvia you know ref- looks back on her relationship with him fondly mm-hmm. but I mean my ex my evidence from witnesses was that he treated her appalling. poorly
0: yes yeah yeah um all right so you point to blue mask and, and new york as the best of of lou in the 80s and i i think it's fair to suggest um this is kind of where he begins to cement his legacy um and if bob dylan is the nobel laureate should lou now be considered uh this era's shakespeare
2: well i you know i don't think so i mean I don't think so uh i don't i mean Bob Dylan is so consistent and brilliant, so consistently brilliant, yeah, he's the Picasso of i'm not sure if he's if shakespeare but he's 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 right up there at the top of the, his game world class
0: hundreds of, of years from now, we'll be still yeah, talking about he's, Bob Dylan.
2: he's num- he's the num he's probably the number one creative figure of our alive today in the world. Yeah. Um Lou Reed's a much, you know, he's he's at least two or three notches down, but at his best, you know, pale blue eyes, um I'm waiting for the man, um he was great.
0: All right, in the 90s two things uh, I, I'd like you to comment on. The first is is Lou working again with John Cale on songs for Drella? Oh, that was great.
2: Wasn't that great? Don't you think?
0: Yeah, yeah, and yeah because it's 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 an homage to uh, to Andy Warhol, who had recently passed away uh, from gallbladder surgery, and and again, as we said earlier, you know, uh, uh, Andy was a towering figure in Lou's life.
3: Yeah,
2: and Songs for Drella, after all those mediocre, crappy '80s Arista albums, Songs for Drella is well written. It's good it's good writing it's well observed it's funny it's touching
0: Well it's, it's, it's him and John Cale again you 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 yeah. call the the album the best work uh that Lou or John had done together or or apart since the VU days
2: Absolutely it's superb it's it's the best album no one's ever heard because it, I'm I'm sure it's very not well known even now it's not well known mm-hmm. it's absolutely superb the the track the dream um about um, Andy Warhol having this kind of dream about people from his past is so powerful and moving and atmospheric. I mean, you really feel you are in Andy's world in the best best way, really. And um, the whole thing is just growing up in a small town. The songs are so good, so good. Uh, you wonder, it's always, the, it's always the thing with people like me, read. You think, well, why can't he be that good all the time? But you know it's not easy to be good all the time. No, it's you need the inspiration
0: uh, to uh, to to you know to 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 drive you through. I mean, you know, uh, let's take this book. You know, you spent five years of your life on it, and you did because the inspiration of Lou Reed was uh, you know the 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 primary uh, motivating factor there. I I would say that uh, Songs for Trell, and I think the the album before it and the album after it are all kind of wrapped up in the death of of Andy Warhol, right?
2: Yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, maybe he wasn't, he wasn't perhaps drinking so much. I mean, Lou, yeah, Lou's yeah, career was blighted by cool. drinking and yeah. drugs. Yeah. And when he was drunk, or he was just too, doing too many drugs, he wasn't really very good. So in the Velvets, actually, he wasn't doing many drugs. I um, mean, Doug Ewell says he doesn't remember him ever doing drugs mm-hmm. in, that, in that period of the Velvets, that last um, album. Uh, or the last two albums and that was when he was terrific in the mid in the early 70s when he was drunk or stoned um you know he was very patchy i mean people who are drunk aren't don't tend to work at their best
0: no uh, <laughs> that, 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 yes uh you know save it uh, for uh, uh uh after the work is done uh yeah uh, and best. so at,
2: at towards the end of his career he gets sober uh, you know, f- over a long period of time although Actually, as I found out from the yeah, book, he not, did
0: cheat—not permanently. Yeah, yeah. That no, he
2: did job. cheat, and he did end up—you know—dying of a liver, of liver cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. but um, liver failure. But you know, he, there was a long period of sobriety at, at the end, and the work is much more consistent at the end. Although those are those albums aren't well known. I mean, they're pretty good. Those last albums he did. Uh, up until the dreadful Metallica, you know, debacle. <laughs> well, um, yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, but 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 I mean, in the but from Transformer to Metal Machine Music. I mean, he was he was completely out of his mind on drugs yeah. all the time. Yeah, and all of, all of that stuff is really tossed off in a cynical. And especially
0: the horrible uh, uh, the Speed World, uh, which you know makes you feel like you're actually accomplishing something, but yeah. probably not. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
2: it's, it's it's delusional, isn't it?
0: Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. All right. So, uh, the, uh, of course, the Velvet Underground uh, get back together for a short period of time. Um, you know, uh, it, it's too bad that they 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 weren't be able to. I guess it's too bad that Lou wasn't able to control himself and uh, and allow uh, the. The band to to breathe and uh, and see what they could do in a in a reconstituted format, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, I think it's very sad, and it's very sad personally for Kale and uh, Sterling, who died shortly afterwards, and Moe, that they had such a miserable time. And and Mo, whom I went to interview in down in Georgia, where she lives, this remarkably quiet life. You you know, she just no one knows who she is down there.
3: Yeah.
2: Um. Uh. She had the the best. You know, she had the best of intentions, she loved Lou, she was endlessly forgiving of Lou. But even Mo said that he was an absolutely impossible person during that tour. And in the in the sense that he wanted to be the star. He wanted to be, so it was development underground, but Lou being Lou Reed, he had to be the star. And He made their lives a misery, and he made John Cale's life an absolute misery. But without John Cale, you know, he was half the person that he was otherwise.
3: Mm, mm. And
2: yet he never had the humility, really, to see that. And and indeed, the same is true of John Cale. I mean, John Cale is half the the artist he is without Lou Reed. But um, the, the ego just got in the way.
0: Well, <clears throat> there are several uh, famous uh, duos that we could uh, uh, point the finger at uh, as well. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, Lou, at this point, is definitely the rock star of, uh, you know, uh, of the the four. I mean, he, he is, is well known. Oh, yeah. Al- sure. Although he, you know, he should, to your point, should have recognized uh, his position and uh, that, you know, he owed... These other three, such a huge debt, uh, by you know, creating the base for that, uh, to happen. Um, I mean, you know, he, he Lou is you know, popular in Europe, uh, he's hanging out with Vaclav Havel, the president of uh, Czechoslovakia at the time, uh, and uh, it just seems like he just. He, he, he couldn't see that uh, uh, to to your point. He just he couldn't see how how he didn't need to to just be that assertive in, in every uh, uh, moment of uh, of control uh, in that band. Wouldn't you say?
3: Yeah,
2: I think unfortunately with many artists, with even in my own humble sphere, if you do something in the public eye, you are to some extent judged by sales and your and your profile yeah. and you know and you can you can be driven mad by sales figures and by your relationship with your manager your record company um, and you know whether the last album was in top in the top 10 or didn't even get in the top 40 that sort of thing can drive you mad and and i think sadly lou was always tormented by that he wasn't big enough and successful enough not to care, like the Stones or Elton right, John. Right, and, right. But he was kind of always on the cusp of being a star, but he wasn't really a superstar. He was a kind of indie star, as people would say now. You know, he, he could play stadiums if Bono introduced him, but otherwise he couldn't fill a stadium.
3: No.
2: Um, you know, he, he, he some of his some of his album sales were absolutely pitiful, and, and people like Clive Davis would sign him to um, Arista for peanuts, really, just to kind of have his name on the roster. But you know, there was no money there. And Lou was playing the bottom line in New York. You know, he's playing a supper club, mm. uh, really. Um, whereas he had the artistic status of a of a Dylan or a Joni Mitchell, but he didn't have the popularity.
0: So in 1996, the Velvet Underground are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, all except Sterling, who had recently passed, are there. And and now Lou, who's kind of becomes a bit more of a of a, of a rich man, uh, he leaves his old bohemian life behind. He meets his third and final wife, the great Laurie Anderson. And for the next 20 years. Uh, he builds a legacy, not just with music, but acting in films, publishing books on poetry, and living a, a comfortable society life. Um, he he does seem closed uh, off on his uh, personal life in public, but uh, maybe that's just the product of the times. Um, uh, I asked because I had this thought while reading the book. I, I noticed that lyrically... The rock and roll era is mostly writing to and about the common man or woman. That the music uh, was uh, a comment on on the worker, warts and all. And I and I and I don't see that as uh, as the grist of the writers today. And uh, in, 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 let me explain this in a different. Way. In in other words, Lou and Company were looking over at sometimes. Uh, or or down into uh, a guy or girl on the subway or in the market or the mall but today you know uh, the subject is more like old opera the the subject is looking above um do you think lou could have made it in today's music world
2: um i don't know that today's music world is so strange isn't it it's um it's all done on live performance and social um, Yeah, that's where the money social is. Media. You,
0: don't, you don't make anything on records. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, but it's, I, you know, and maybe I'm not explaining myself correctly. You know, when I, I read those lyrics or Dylan or, or Neil Young or, or on and on and on, uh, you know, it's like they they are expressing the, 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 the experience of, of, of kind of, you know, the average person, or the dark secrets of the average person, or you know, um, um, you know, the love lives of uh, of the average person, and and I I see that the writing today is more. Uh, you know, grandiose. Uh, You know, it's about uh, looking up and trying to, you know, find a way to be on that super yacht uh, and with the bling and and all of that, which reminds me of, you know, the normal subject matter of opera is, you know, the Olympian gods or what have you. Oh,
2: yeah, I see. Well, I I don't entirely agree. I mean, I I would say that uh, people of the seventies and sixties, the the great writers like, you know, Dylan, Jody yeah, Mitchell yeah, and yeah. Leonard Cohen and Dylan. They wrote about special people really. They wrote about people who were bohemians, artists, people who lived magical enchanted lives, really. I mean, think of Leonard Cohen's Marianne or or you know Bob Dylan's Visions of Johanna or
3: uh-huh,
2: Leopard uh-huh. Skin Pillbox Hat. Yeah. These weren't working class people. I mean working the working class was is the stuff of top forty pop, but I think Art, art rock, if you want to give it that label, is a little bit fancier. And a lot of these people are very middle class. Lou was very middle class. Yeah, yeah. We well, established
0: so Bob and Paul. Simon yeah, and on and so's and on. Alone, yeah, and
2: so, so mm-hmm. was Joni, and so was L- yeah. and they, and they yeah. lived kind of moneyed, privileged, rather sophisticated lives. Um, and they liked to have good dinners and live in nice places. And uh, you know, they they were they, were, they weren't poor people. Um, Lou was never. I mean, Lou had bad periods in his career financially he was broke but he wasn't from the gutter i mean he liked to give you the impression he was from the gutter (laughs) from the street but he certainly wasn't he was from you know he was from long island you know a a bungalow on in freeport um with a lawn out front and dad was an accountant
0: yeah so uh he invented uh his his life uh you know he he may have fantasized and and gravitated towards uh you know knowing uh, about uh, or learning trying to learn about uh you know the the seedier sides of, of life yeah. but yeah. um uh, but, but he, d- he definitely did. wasn't born in it so uh, okay 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 yeah I, I can see that uh that now that uh you know if you if you look at it in in uh, away from the 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 standard pop song, but more into the the, the more intellectual art writers, uh, as you the, the the list of names you you just rattled off. Um, you're you're right. They they are 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 kind of uh, gazing upwards uh, as well uh, in some way. So on October twenty seventh, two thousand thirteen, we lost Lou Reed uh, to metastasized liver cancer, and perhaps like losing Lennon, Bowie, Prince, uh, the the world uh, does indeed uh, seem a smaller place. Um, what do you want to leave our diggers uh, with about your book on on Lou Reed, Notes from the Velvet Underground?
2: Well, but it it was written um, from. A sincere admiration for Lou Reed, as someone who grew up as a boy listening to his records. You know, bought all his records with my pocket money, went to the concerts. Uh, you know, I was a fan. I was a fan. So it, it's not cynical in any way, but I'm also a professional biographer, and it's and I've of some experience. And when when you find evidence, you you go where the evidence goes. And the evidence of Lou Reed's life is that, not unlike many artists, you can be a great artist and be a, an unpleasant person. And often great artists are unpleasant people.
0: Yeah, I, I tell everybody, my favorite painter is Caravaggio, and he, he killed people with swords, so there you have it. Exactly, yeah.
2: Because, <laughs> you know, life bends you out of shape, and the artistic life really bends you out of shape. Um, so, And that happened with Lou Reed. And he, he was a difficult often unpleasant person that doesn't mean to say he wasn't a great artist and doesn't mean to say that that book this book isn't written with admiration and indeed many of his albums like songs for drella the new york album 1969 the first underground album these are great records and you know one's life has been enriched by them but if you want but a biography is about someone's life and if you want to know who lou rey was you have to take him on warts and all and not be blinkered by being a fan um, fans are often they just want to see the best in their idols you know Lou Reed said uh, Bob Dylan once said I don't want to be a fan fan short for fanatic you know why would I want to be a fan and I feel the same you know it's kind of a foolish thing to be a fan of somebody a celebrity but you know take them on for you know with warts and all see them good and bad you know Picasso was a was a, you know, a misogynist, yes. a womanizer, a yes. drunk, mm. but he was the greatest artist in the 20th century. Yeah. You know, Bob, you know, mm. Winston Churchill was a drunk, uh, <laughs> but he was a, the greatest statesman of our time. Uh, but you know, Lou Reed was a bit of a prick, to, to use a commonly used word, <laughs> word about him, but he was also the Lou Reed who wrote Pale Blue Eyes, and it's a beautiful song.
0: Yeah, yeah. Howard Soons, thanks so much for spending time with us today on Deeper Digs in Rock.
2: Thanks, Christian. I enjoyed it.
1: Holly came from Miami, FLA, hitchhiked away across the USA Oh,
0: another great discussion. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Big thanks to Howard Soons. His new book, The Life of Lou Reed, Notes from the Underground, is well worth the time for any Lou Reed Velvet Underground fan, even if you've read other bios from the past. So is Lou a genius on par with those two kids from Liverpool? Well, I'm not sure any except the maybe the other Jewish kid hailing from Hibi, Minnesota, uh, will ever qualify uh, to the top tier positions. Um, Lou was far too inconsistent and unfocused. Uh, As we joke uh, about in the interview, uh, metal machine music, anyone? (laughs) But he started the Velvet Underground with John Cale. He did make some extremely interesting music in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And he was ultra-hip ahead of his time culturally, Uh, a keen observer, and was able to make hits and great art uh, every now and again, and sometimes at the same time. His his story is that of the classical tortured artist, uh, manufactured or not. I'm not sure I will ever answer my question on rock and roll geniuses and where it comes from exactly. Um, But I will say with Lou Reed, he achieved it in uncompromising ways. Uh, He just didn't give a fuck, uh, at least until later life. Uh, Again, metal machine music, anybody. As we know from Rock and Roll Archaeology episode 17, the Velvets are giants when it comes to lasting influence. Lou was the pop architect of the band, and he never gave in to the machine of making music. He almost always tried to make art, even if he failed at it from time to time. Uh, Lulu with Metallica is his last album, folks, okay? Uh, but that insistent approach to his music, the fearlessness of it, um, certainly is the beginnings of genius. Okay, that's it for this week. Our next episode, I sit down with my new frenemy, Jake Brennan of the Disgraceland podcast. <laughs> I say that because I have a love-hate relationship with this show. Um, if you've never heard Disgraceland uh, and you are a rock and roll podcast fan, well, you are missing out. It's fucking good. And that's why I hate to Jake, uh, purely professional jealousy. Hey, uh, at least I'm honest. huh? Uh, he has a new book out uh, built like a Frankenstein's monster from the podcast, and it's just as fun uh, as a Frankenstein's monster uh, and as his podcast. <laughs> we will dig deep into that and all things Jake Brennan. So tune in for a rockin' good time. Okay, you know what to do, and that is to keep up the rocking
1: satellites gone up to the skies things like that drive me out of my mind. I watched it for a little while. I like to watch things on TV satellite on Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of Satellite's gone way up to Mars Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All
0: sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios.
1: Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at rnrarchaeology. Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology.
0: At Discount Tire, we know your time is valuable. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online. Did you know Discount Tire now sells wiper blades? Check out our current deals at discounttire.com or stop in and talk to an associate today. Discount Tire. Let's
3: get you taken care of.